Hello listeners and welcome to Popscreen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bad and the bewildering of movies, either starving about, or in this case, starving and by pop stars. <laughs> That's Aiden's <laughs> dog. Uh, stop. For fuck's sake. <laughs> we haven't uh, even begun the episode. <laughs> I'm your host, Brian Williamson. I'm a critic for the Geek Show and a filmmaker. I also write for Horrified.com, the British horror website. I'm joined this week by... Aidan Fatkin. Uh, yeah, go under the username Aidan F on Letterboxd. I'm also back on Twitter uh, under the username Doco and Drummer. Yes. And the pop star we're covering this week, Aidan, is... Uh, Jimi Hendrix, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, Barbara Streisand we're covering today. Streisand. Streisand. Barbara Streisand. 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 For fuck's sake, are we doing this already? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, this is, to, to me, this joke from Licorice Pizza is Barbara Streisand's major cultural footprint over the last decade or so. Um, I, I am not an expert. I am not a Streisandologist. I will say that up front. <laughs> this episode will come out after the episode you do on Licorice Pizza, isn't it? So For a moment, I thought you were just going to break off uh, before you mentioned Licorice Pizza. I'd say that this episode will come out. Is that... Yeah, unfortunately, this will be released. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can't get out of it this easily. Um, I could quote a licorice pizza for days. You're thinking things, you finger. <laughs> God, I love that film. Me too. But this week's film is not licorice pizza. This week's film is The Prince of Tides, Barbara Streisand's 1991 film as director and star, uh, which also featured Nick Nolte. Do you know what accolade Nick Nolte received in the year after this was released? Is it a Razzie? It's not a Vassy, no. Okay, no, never mind. This film was nominated for several Oscars, um, but did not win one. Uh, however, the year after, Nick Nolte won People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive poll. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> which, I mean, I've checked the records. I've checked the records and David Bowie was alive in 1992, so it's not actually true. Uh, but he did he did win that trophy in a, a move that retrospectively seems absolutely bizarre. <laughs> that is really strange, yeah. I mean, yes. in my vote, I'd probably go, if, if, if we're talking about 90s Hollywood leaving men, I would say Jeff Bridges, but never mind. Oh, that's a good call, yes. There was a time, I think, back in the early 70s where every single Jeff Bridges poster had to have him shirtless. Uh, so, yeah, he would have absolutely made a better choice than, the, than Nick Nolte. Nick <laughs> Nolte, everyone. Sounds like the, the Tom Waits in Broadway just drinks, like, whiskey. <laughs> I think most of uh, Nick Nolte's later roles he could swap with Tom Waits and the film would be not much different but this is this is perhaps not a role Tom Waits would be good in I think yeah I, I would agree I, I would totally agree because can we um, discuss like the plots and offices of Prince of Tides yeah. because this was a film that we that I had to bring up because it would be very easy on pop screen to just do episodes on, like, say, bands, artists we love or things like that. And yeah. I brought this to attention for, for two reasons. Firstly, um, because that Prince of Tides, it, well, it's Barbara Streisand, so 
Streisand. Streisand. <laughs> I'm just going to say it my way. Barbara Streisand. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, because she's not, you know, a pop star singer that I have much familiarity with or anything like that. So it, it only makes sense and fair to cover like the stars that we don't, you know, yeah. tend to talk yeah. about, which is fair enough. The second reason is, is that I caught up, I watched this film on the UK Criterion Blu-ray release. Mm. I don't know whether you were the same or anything like that. No, I didn't. No. Um, so, because it, because it brought, that was the, how it was brought to my attention, really, through, through that release. So, um, I, I thought it was like, well, maybe this would be quite an interesting film to tackle on pop screen. It was brought to my manner. attention uh, the first time uh, because it's the subject of two pretty great jokes on in classic Simpsons. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's the one in Selma's Choice where Marge uh, remembers her childhood and then stops because she realises she's just remembered the opening scenes of Prince of Tides. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's the one in Figure of Flying where Marge thanks the therapist and says that uh, every time she hears the wind whistling through the trees. She'll hear the name Lowenstein. And it's not Lowenstein, it's, it's, it's Swig. It's Swig, isn't it? Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that episode of The Simpsons. I used to watch it, like, uh, back to back on VHS, like, ages and ages ago. And, uh, but I, I just want, um, I just want the, uh, uh, the Zweig character to just, uh, like, say, it's not Lowenstein, it's Stein, like, as a joke to young Frankenstein. <laughs> yes. Well, that's a simultaneous young Frankenstein and licorice pizza joke now, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't... Uh, we didn't get this one through on Criterion. We do often get the Criterion collection Blu-rays throughout the Geek Show, but this was mm. not one of them. And it's interesting yeah. that it's out on think, Criterion because I... Yeah I, think, yeah, I think that might have just been like a pandemic thing because I think that was like 2020 or something. Oh, it could have been. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. But I remember a lot of jokes about Barbara Streisand's directorial career that mostly centred on Yentl rather than this. And it's interesting mm. that she is now in the Criterion collection, because I was trying to gauge how respected she was as a director back when she was making these things. And it's notable that both this and Yentl got many Oscar nominations, but none of them were for Best Director. And this, mm -hmm. was, a, this was a time where, it, not like it is now, where the, any relationship between the Best Picture nominations and the Best Director nominations are purely coincidental. Um, mm -hmm. But back then, if you got a Best Picture nomination, that was considered guarantee of the best director nomination but that didn't happen mm. this was up for best picture but not best director and billy crystal who was hosting that year's oscars even commented on how weird that was mm, yeah i mean it is strange to see a name like barbara streisand in that collection to be honest with you because mm. you know you, you think that the high gamut kind of directors you know like john houston's or william wyland's which is funny because i think um Streisand did get her career started, or her acting career started through Funny Girl, which is a William Wyler film, isn't it? Oh, right. I, yeah, I hadn't checked yeah, the director on that, but you might just be right. Let me check. Uh, I think that's how she started. And, and we could have done like a Star is Born, but I really didn't want to do a Star is Born because... Uh... It was William Wyler. You're quite right. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
I agree. There is something in any version. There is something powerfully unappealing about the story of a star is born for me, and mm. I don't quite know what that is. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just think it would have been interesting to just talk about a directorial career because this is based on Pat Conroy novel, isn't it? Yeah, and Pat Conroy loved the film. Mm-hmm. He did. He certainly did. Um, I think he actually wrote a note or something like that about how much he admired Streisand for his her ability on this. Calling her the Queen of Tides. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Which is lovely, I thought. Yeah, there aren't many Hollywood stories of the writer loving the book, so it's nice to highlight <laughs> one when it happens. Uh, the writer loving oh, the movie, you, sorry. Yeah. Can you imagine if Stephen King did that for Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, but she does have this very singular position in Hollywood, Streisand, in that she, she is reliably popular even at a time when there are not many women in Hollywood directing or even starring in high-grossing films. Mm. There's, a, there's a poll of the top 10 money-making stars that uh, film exhibitors put together every year. She was in it from mm. 1969 to 1980, and she was frequently the only woman on that list you know the 70s new hollywood has many delights but Mm -hmm. big star roles for women not so much not often yeah yeah and in and in this in this particular film prince of tides it's uh it's very much the kind of 90s hollywood melodrama that you get like i remember like my nan had like a collection of them on vhs back in like the late 90s yeah. Um, this wasn't one of them, unfortunately, but, you know, films like Fried Green Tomatoes or The Bridges of Madison County, possibly even like Stand By Me or something like that. So it certainly falls into that vein, even mm. down to like the James Newton Howard score, which I'm sure we'll get into. So oh, um, yes. can we talk about Yeah. yeah. Can, can we talk about the plot of this? Because it's... It, it's sort of, it's almost a mystery story, isn't it? The Prince of Tides. It's, it's not... There is crime in it, although it's not primarily a crime story, but the structure mm. of it is essentially uh, almost bringing a sort of Agatha Christie-style narrative to psychoanalysis, which is something bad has clearly happened, and we mm. have to go through and find out what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just, it delves in that nature through, like, great chemistry between Nick Nolte and Streisand herself as uh, Lowenstein. The mm. character. And I'm, I'm just going to come out and say this right now, even if it's like a 90s Hollywood melodrama, and, you know, I can be very iffy on those subjects. I really liked Prince of Tides. <laughs> oh, right, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's, I, I had a few more problems with the film, but I think there are really great things about it and I think Mm. one of them is as you say that relationship between Streisand and Nolte which gets past the fact that it is (laughs) it is one of my least favorite Hollywood romance tropes which is the um uh uh, I I have irresistible sexual chemistry with my therapist it's like well that's not so much Mm. a romance for the ages as it is medical malpractice if we're honest (laughs) true (laughs) but But yeah yeah it it, it just weirdly clicked for me and i I don't know why because normally i wouldn't be attracted to this at all as i Mm. I was saying before but again just something down to the craft of it and how it feels like in the opening sequence where you have the james newton house car as we mentioned earlier as well as like um just very like Malachian 
kind of inspired shots. I know I'm talking to the resident Malikian expert on this yeah. subject. And um, of like, say, like the river and obviously Norte introducing like the whole shebang as Tom Wingo. Tom Wingo, by the way. Tom Wingo name. is an, a name that belongs in a season of Fargo, if you ask me. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's got it, character. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, and and how did you feel about Wingo when we first meet him? Because the the opening of the Prince of Tides is like a Nick Nolte charm offensive, isn't it? It's it mm. makes it very clear that Nolte is one of this film's major assets. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't sure where I was going to love his character or not, or or hate him because. What you're dealing with here is like, because, you know, he's a happily married man at this point, um, mm. when the person introduced him. Um, obviously, it can be a bit rocky at times because his missus is obviously later on in the film, because we're going to delve into spoilers with this, because yeah, we've had like, thir- yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, his missus is like having an affair behind his back in like casual conversation over the phone at Crawl. And he has to do, he slowly but surely does the same with Lowenstein as well. Yeah, and at first I wasn't sure how I felt about that because you're also tackling with something like because you're tackling with subjects on his sister like attempting suicide, obviously mm. affairs as well, and part of me thinks this is going to be either like if it's done like really badly because the last episode we did it on was uh, the Oscar, yeah. and that's knowledge. And that's a melodrama. The last episode that we recorded, and that's an episode where uh, it's the cinematic equivalent of watching like the Hindenburg disaster when something <laughs> like <laughs> flagpole moment of like um, he's like bad taste but done incredibly crudely. <laughs> it, it's it's one of those things, isn't it, where you can talk about melodrama as being um, a, a low form. But that's not really fair. Mm. I think the the difference between a good melodrama and a bad melodrama is that you have to have someone in a senior position who really has conviction for all of these plot elements mm-hmm. and who can say, look, even at its most cliche, this is something I believe in, this is something that could happen, yeah. this is something that moved me. And the Oscar visibly does not have anyone who is thinking that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, kudos to Streisand because obviously she takes the you know material very very seriously completely yeah uh, yeah and it's odd really because by this point she was one of a pretty small number of people in hollywood who specialized in this material you mentioned funny girl earlier and, and funny mm-hmm. girl funny girl is a great musical and it's kind of like the glass slipper for actresses who are not mm-hmm. maybe conventionally attractive that they can mm-hmm. be in that play and it's just a great leading role for them. I note that uh, there's going to be a new Broadway production soon with Beanie Feldstein, who I think is just oh, great. Right. Okay. So, yeah, it's that kind of role. That sounds cute. Uh, and by the early 90s, she had staked out this position which is kind of unexpected uh, when you look mm-hmm. at how she began. She had staked out this position of absolute unwavering sincerity you know that that often made to the the target of a certain kind of mockery i mean i remember Mm -hmm. 
people were always talking about Yentl when I was growing up as if it was like the most insane Hollywood actor ego trip, which I don't think it is. I don't think it's top 20, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I've, yeah, I've never seen Yentl, so I, I can't really leave a comment. I mean, we, we could, like I said, we could have done Yentl, but I, I think Prince of Tides probably had more muscle behind it. And I just think it's like, it's not that the film is bad or it's not even that the film is vain. I mean, my God, if you if you're an actress in Hollywood and you just want to make a movie where you look sexy and cool, maybe playing a woman who dresses up as a boy to study at a Hasidic Jewish school, there, there are better tactics, right? There are better <laughs> dimensions you can go in than that. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's just that this kind of material has a kind of golden age Hollywood feel that was very alien to anything else going on in American cinema at that point. Mm. Which why I brought up the Malachian influence earlier, because it's like very sweeping very early on, like mm. uh, around the Wingo Estate and like, I, I guess like Southern America or something like that. Yeah. Uh, not, not that Southern America, I mean like the America, Deep like South. Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. Deep South. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so it works that way and pure, because it is a, Really good-looking film. Really yeah, handsomely absolutely. shot in that way. Who's the cinematographer on this, actually? I'm glad you asked that. I looked this up because I had the exact same thought. It's a guy called Stephen Goldblatt, who's... Uh, I expected him to be like... Uh, I thought maybe this guy shot something like Out of Africa or some other 80s mm. Oscar film. Not the case. He shot the first two Lethal Weapon films. Uh, That's... And... Wow. And the Joel Schumacher Batman films, which <laughs> I guess that demonstrates range. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that, that's quite a surprise. I wasn't expecting. And you imagine if he got his colour gels mixed up and Batman and Robin had to be shot in this sort of golden magic hour sunset and Prince of Tides was all in neon colours. Oh man! Uh, <laughs> God, I could just like, like imagine like the Arnold Schwarzenegger puns like seeping <laughs> through <laughs> the sweeping cinematography. That is brilliant. <laughs> he also has uh, another very prestigious pop music credit, which I was unaware of. Um, that he shot the promo photos for the White Album. Okay, right, yeah. Apparently the Beatles wanted to go with a young, less well-known photographer after collaborating with, you know, the best in the world uh, before that. And yeah, Stephen Goldblatt, he got the gig. Mm. That's a very interesting bit of information, yeah. Yeah. Because like, like I say, it's a, like a very well-crafted film. Yeah, um, yeah. For, like, for what it's trying to do. I mean, you know, all the sweeping shots, even when it gets to New York, where it becomes more like a psychodrama. And I'm naturally drawn to psychodramas because, you know, I, you know, I'm the resident in Mar Bergman fan. So, you know, <laughs> yes. well, hand held up high. Yeah, I, I admit that. So, um, but it, it delves, it, I mean, if there's one book there, I mean, I, I would have liked to have seen more of like, say, like the, sis, the, the development between Tom Wingo and his sister. I do think that gets yeah. a bit glossed over for me. It's strange that, isn't it? Because his sister's suicide attempt is the inciting incident that kicks off mm. the entire plot. And yet she isn't really there. It, it's yeah. one of the 
it's one of the holes in the drama. It does remind me of, and, and I will preface this by saying, I think this film is nowhere near as bad as the film I'm about to name check. But uh, that part of it did remind me a bit of Promising Young Woman, where you right. have this, this woman whose death is like the catalyst for Carrie Mulligan to do everything that she does in that film. And we never see her. And I don't think that film gives a shit about her. I think mm. the Prince of Tides clearly cares more for Tom's sister, but it's not about yes. her. Yes. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it is absent. Yes. Uh, and then for like two and a half hours, I, I would have liked to see talkers because all we get really is like brief shots of like, say, Wingo, like combing her hair or reading her a book, which are lovely sequences. And I wanted more of that. But I, I guess that's also kind of a good complaint with um, Trizan just effectively cooking up something, some really, done really tastefully, actually, I think. Mm. In terms of Streisand as an actress, one thing that I, I was interested in, particularly since, as I say, you know, you you have Yentl before this and that had been, it had been awarded, it had, you know, got some Oscar nominations, but it had been criticised mm-hmm. as a vanity project. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think Lowenstein is a good star role? Uh, Streisand? Mm, yeah. Well, I'm in two mindsets, because I think... Streisand plays it really well. I think, mm. you know, for, say, a singer-turn-actress, you know, she really does command the screen very well. I think it's just a matter of the fact of how the character positions herself, if you know mm. what I mean. And I don't know how I feel. It's it's like, it's a very strange complex once you get into the, like, the rhythm of the film, because it's I think it's, like, a very rhythmic film with how the dialogue's handled, you know, how it cuts back to the flashback sequences, et cetera, et cetera. Of Wingo's past, etc., um, and it can also be a deeply disturbing film for a Hollywood Absolutely. romance. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, and for the Lowenstein character to be like the um, the catalyst, like the full marker of being in that frontal position of like trying to obviously control and get deeper into it. Mm. I mean, it can be a complete turn off if like if it's done like the wrong way. But I think you know, Streisand works. in her favour. I think, yeah, I think she's good in it. I think what interested me is that maybe when this was announced, some of those people who were damning Yentl might have said, oh, Streisand's doing it again. She's given herself the star role in a new film. She's a glamorous, successful career woman in it, and she gets to have an affair with Nick Nolte, who, as we've discussed, is the sexiest man alive. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't get it, but People magazine said it, so it must be true. Um, And yet... (laughs) In the film, and I think this is ultimately a good film, a good good, uh, decision for the film, but Mm -hmm. in the film, she takes a step back. It's not an unflattering role. It's not a boring role, but it's not her story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, because even then, like the... Because even if you look at like the poster for this, I mean, you like I say, you would assume it's like a sweeping romance because, you know... Uh, Lowenstein is like in Wingo's arms, they're cuddling over the sunset, et cetera, et cetera. But their romance, it only really happens in like, like the final half an hour of the film. Um, you, after that, there's a, a lot of, of build-up. Yeah. Did you have a sort of strange feeling when that shot appeared in the film? Because I, I, I was trying to work out what it was, and I just think it's because movie posters nowadays do not incorporate actual stills from the film. And mm, yeah, 
when they actually embraced, as you say, quite close to the end of the film, it was like someone had said the title. All I needed was for Nick Nol for Barbara Streisand to say, oh, Nick Nolte, you truly are the Prince of Tides. And it would have been <laughs> perfect. It would have had everything. And you are my Queen of Tides. Yes. You, James Duke, Howard Score, wouldn't violent. Yes, <laughs> it's... it's um... <laughs> I didn't really get that feeling, to be honest. I mean, I was expecting that shot to turn off. But right. At the, the end, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, you know, it's kind of expected, to be honest. Uh, we've met James Newton Howard score a bit, and I, I get the sense that you are itching to talk about this because my main feeling about it is that there is a lot of score there. Mm, there is a lot of score, and some of it's beautifully handled, but... um. <sighs> Again, it goes back to like thinking like the Prince of Tides is like expected to have like this kind of score. I mean, you're not expecting like a Cliff Martinez kind of symphony oh, soundtrack, oh. are you? <laughs> it would be great, but it, it wouldn't work. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, in a lot of ways, I mean, because James Newton Howard, what else did he do? Most famous, I think, for Titanic. Which which makes sense. I mean, it's yeah. the kind of score that you you have to assume he got off the back of this. Mm. Or, yeah. or did he? It... Wait, am I right about that? Have I misremembered that? I'm because I'm certain Titanic came after. It did. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Did I did I misremember that he'd he'd done that? Oh, the postman he did as well. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. I yeah, have misremembered so he, that. Who did the score for Titanic? Here we go. Live research centre time. <laughs> Exciting <laughs> scenes of people looking things up on the internet, listeners. God damn it. Right. Okay, hang on. Uh, I've got it here. Music by... No, James Horner. Oh, James Horner. Right. Yes. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I'm looking down James Newton Howard's actual list of uh, list of credits, and it, it is more of eclectic than I thought. There are, certainly are some romantic melodramas and romantic comedies in here. There is also mm -hmm. Space Jam. Fantastic! Even the like the, like the, dogs. the dogs off. Set the dogs <laughs> off. Yes. <laughs> Soon as Graham said Space Jam, there we go. <laughs> you know what dogs are like? They, they love Space Jam. Someone has to. <laughs> it's, it's Michael Jordan. You, you, you know, you can't dislike Michael Jordan. He's America's greatest athlete. Anyway, yeah, back to this. Um... Uh, oh, dear. Um, yeah, he did a lot of uh, M. Night Shyamalan's early stuff. Um mm -hmm. Oh, he did the score for Collateral by Michael Mann. That's a great movie. Yeah, there's there's not much that you can nail down here. There's not much of, of a sense where you can say, oh, James Newton Howard, he does that kind of movie, which is fair enough. I think that's admirable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so how do you feel about the score? Is it just... I I have to admit it, it bothered me a fair bit. I would have right. liked a lot less of that score. And there were moments... It, particularly during the scenes where um, where Tom is training Dr. Lowenstein's son to play football, mm -hmm. which I think could have, could have been sort of cute little scenes, nice little breathers in between the more heavy stuff. But yeah. Howard's score is just going barmy in those scenes, I think. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it's... 
I mean, and, and you know, that's perfectly understandable. You know, I mean, I mean, in, in aspect... sentimental about football. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it, it's just a matter of, I mean, it's not as like on a badly done scale as say, again, going back to the Oscar, <laughs> um, where it's just like constantly just in your face the whole time and penetrating your eardrums. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of I kind of liked it. It's just uh, James Newton's Howard score. I, I understand completely, but you know, music is just like you know, one man's um, glimmer is like another man's. I don't know where I'm going with this. One man's glimmer is like another man's you know hatred. What is what, like? One man's gl- one man's glitter uh, is another man's better film that does not star Mariah Carey. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what. There's another, uh, film. Yeah. There's another different... film we could do for pop screen. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another uh, director who James Newton Howard has worked with, which I think is extremely significant, considering what we've been talking about earlier. But he's mm-hmm. done some work with um, with Terence Malick. Uh, yes. There we are. Can you feel circle? Yeah. Um. um but yeah, and there is, and like I said, it like Graham said, the score wasn't like that all the time. There's also like uh, the harrowing sequence where, where, where we're going to have to like talk about it, to where talk about it just, it. yeah, 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 where it's just completely absent. Where Wingo mm. recites what happened to him, his sister, and his brother, and his mother actually, I think, all yeah, like yeah. one difficult night. Yeah, uh, that the the trauma that is at the root of. And I think it's interesting that it's portrayed as both at the roots of his sister's sort of depression. Mental health problem. Yeah, yeah, mental health issues, yeah. And in a strange way, his own kind of ebullience, his own determination to just sort of charm his way past any problems and just move on as soon as he can, mm-hmm. uh, is that, that there was a home invasion and the wife of the family and the kids were all raped during it. And there's mm. a very yeah. I'm glad you mentioned this in the in the context of the music because visually it is very tastefully handled. And there is, is a, yeah. there is a moment when Tom is talking about being raped, and you think, okay, I was not expecting an early nineties yeah. Hollywood film to go there. Um, yeah, yeah. But it has this rock and roll on the soundtrack, which I thought was very strange. Mm. I'm not. I'm glad. Say yeah, it doesn't yeah, work. I'm, where it's yeah. odd. I, I'm glad you picked up on that because that was another thing where it's just like, I mean, it's not like it's like ill-advised or anything like that. Mm. It's just like it sticks out a bit and you just think, well, I wouldn't have minded if they played like the rock and roll song at the start. Mm. And, like say one of the home invaders, like, I don't know, like takes a like a baseball bat and just smashes the record player before they obviously do commit the crime to commit the rape. Yeah. That, if that worked, then fair enough. But if it's, if it's still playing, it's just like it's kind of like an odd nugget of information that doesn't really quite work. I was trying um, to think what Streisand was trying to evoke by it, because of course, in in like a year after this, anyone who uses rock music in the scene of violence is doing it because Quentin Tarantino does it. But this is slightly too mm. early for that to be an influence. I did wonder mm-hmm. if uh, Barbara Streisand was a big fan of Blue Velvet. I hope so. That's interesting. That is interesting thought. Yeah. Because hmm. there's that scene in Blue Velvet where Frank Booth uh, beats the living daylights out of um, 
Kyle McLaughlin's character yes. with sets of that soundtrack in the car. Oh, yeah, I do I do recall that. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, actually. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. And it's interesting because it, it's subtextual in the finished film, but Lynch's original script has a very heavy uh, implication that Jeffrey, the Kyle McLaughlin character, uh, is raped in that scene. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, no, that does make a lot of sense if Streisand took effect on it, mm, to varying degrees, I think. But It's just, it, it, yeah. it makes a certain amount of sense, but it's very, very weird about thinking about Barbara Streisand kicking back with a David Lynch film. Mm, yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about the supporting cast in this? Because we mentioned yeah. Yeah, Nolte, Lex. who's great in it. Streisand, like I say, is great in it. I was not expecting, obviously, Prince of Tides, to, you know, it's a romance film. And then, like, 30 minutes into the film, George Carlin to appear. George Carlin! Yeah, I absolutely agree. That knocked me sideways. And I think the character he's playing is really interesting. Hmm. Because this was at a time where, yeah, this was at a time like George Carlin was in like his heyday with yeah. his comedy work and his stand up work. So, and you know, I, I greatly do. I haven't seen much of his uh, stand up routines, but I, from what I have seen, you know, he is like great, especially how he you know, tackles like themes like religion or Christianity mm. or things like that. Yeah, he, he was, uh, and, and it's interestingly against his image too, isn't it? Because his image mm. at the time was that he was a really hard-hitting political satirist uh, at a time when, you know, satire wasn't really a, a career choice, you know, that like it is now. You, you couldn't get on a satire circus. It was still, you know, the, the prosecution of Lenny Bruce was still in fairly recent memory at this time. Mm. So it's it's really strange and wonderful to see him roll up in a film like this. It is very yeah, unexpected. Yeah. yeah, it's a pleasant surprise. I mean, it's it's like um because obviously we get to see him like obviously being basically like um Mingo's friend, like he hasn't mm. seen for a long time. I know that's probably not taken out of context lightly, but that's how it feels. I, I come across because we also get that party sequence with uh, Lowenstein and kind of like like all street worth of people from New York just rocking up and just having a little bit of fun. Well, this, um, is, this is the other main strand of the film, uh, which I think works very well. Although I think mm -hmm. as time goes by, I sort of have a, a bit of a sweet tooth for stuff like this. But the other mm -hmm. thing about Prince of Tides, apart from being a film about trauma, apart from being a romance film, uh, is that it's also um, a culture clash comedy, right? In a way, yes. Carry on. In that, I mean, Tom is basically the, the South made flesh. And every mm -hmm. time he is, he is drawn up on his determination to sort of run away from his problems and to joke about them rather than confronting them, his response will be, that's the South. That's the Southerner in me. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And in order to... Uh, reunite with his sister and to work with Lowenstein to find out what's at the, the roots of her trauma. Um, he goes up to New York and his neighbour in New York is a gay man played by George Carlin at a time when it is really unexpected to see gay characters in Hollywood films that aren't comedies. Mm -hmm. You know, two yeah. years after this, you've got Philadelphia. And I think that the physical contact that Tom Hanks and Antonio Banderas have in Philadelphia, yeah. it's about as much as 
Tom has with George Carlin's character in this, where they, they hug at the yeah. start and, you know... Yeah, shortly after, you would also have um, something like Mike Nichols's Third Cage as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I, b- I believe also tackles, like, the gay community as yeah. well, in a very different way, like, obviously, with Robin Williams and... Uh, I forget who else was in it, actually. Um, I know it was a remake of Le Cajal Paul, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I forget who was in that, but you've also got, like, um, in, in and out towards the end of um, the decade, which is... I don't like that film, but it's kind of interesting that it's positioned as an issue comedy. It's like trying to hedge mm-hmm. its bets. It's like, what are the two areas where we can discuss gay people in Hollywood right now? Uh, comedy and a big Oscar season issue movie. And in and out is very much trying to be both, which is yeah, sort of retrospectively interesting. Mm, yeah, I mean, dicey. Um, speaking of which, another supporting role who, I mean, I did recognise the name. I wasn't as surprised he was in this as, like, say, Carlin or anyone like that. But Dutch guy, hang on. Oh, Jerome Crab. Yes, who the last I saw was in <laughs> Paul Verhoeven's The Fourth Man. Yeah, b- basically the same film, I think, that and this, aren't they? Very similar <laughs> movies. And I, I mean, I, I know you're, you enjoyed The Fourth Man. I mean, I had a yeah, bit more... Yeah. yeah, I had a bit more of a problem with it because it's just one of these films where I guess it's like Verhoeven kind of like again unfiltered but uh, I don't know all the material doesn't quite stitch together well for me it's it's just kind of taste really I think he's he's definitely doing his Verhoeven thing in it I find it easier to appreciate those films than I do the more acclaimed ones where he's trying to smuggle it into a Hollywood format like I know it's, it's easy to beat up on showgirls so I won't bother but even more mm-hmm well-regarded stuff like Starship Troopers I find very hard to love. But Verhoeven, enough, yeah. Verhoeven being Verhoeven, I just want to ruffle his hair. He's just a naughty yeah. school boy. <laughs> I'm kind of looking forward to Benedetta, by the way. Yeah, so. me too. It's, <laughs> um, it's been a, a justifiably long time since anyone made a movie about lesbian nuns, and I'm glad that there's still <laughs> someone like, <laughs> who's out of time enough to go for it. Yeah, and uh, Crab, I mean, he plays the basically the Ponzi, Lowenstein husband, yeah. Lowenstein's husband, basically. He's a well-regarded concert violinist, uh, quite smug, quite up his own arse. Uh, the first time we see him, he's actually, he uh, approaches both him and both Wingo and uh, Lowenstein's son, who was yeah. actually played by... Um, Streisand's uh, son, yeah. Son, yeah, it was. So and you wonder that because it's just like, oh, they have very similar noses. That's great casting there. And then I look it up, it's just <laughs> yes. like, oh right, it is actually, it is actually <laughs> Streisand's son. Um, her son, her son with Elliot Gould, which I mean, fuck me, there's a power couple there, isn't there? Mm. That's iconic. Yeah, that's yeah. good genes. The, yeah, and then even then, I mean, I don't think like Crab's performance terrible or anything like that but it, it's very much like that like he is a foreign actor export in a Hollywood role yeah kind of thing you know you're never gonna play the just, hero are you yeah it's just like it's kind of unfortunate that is it yeah I, I sort of feel a bit that way about both of the lead actors spouses I think this would just be a much simpler film if you know if maybe just one of them was married or they were both divorced, you know, there's a pretty good reason why Tom would have trouble 
holding a relationship together. You could have integrated mm, yeah. that into the plot very easily. But it just it feels like too many subplots, even for a film that's like two hours and ten minutes. It just feels that is something yeah. that cannot be satisfyingly dealt with in the course yeah, of the not, film. Not, yeah, could have been done like more focused. Had yeah. a lot more focus and a lot more time, and it, like I say, it has plenty of time. It's like, like two hours and ten minutes. I think it r- runs like the same length as say something like Fried Green Tomatoes or say something like that. It's yeah. just like um, there's a lot of effort for in there, and even when Streisand is focusing on what she wants to do, uh, you can commend her for that, really. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's interesting reflecting on her journey as a director because like I say when I was growing up I heard a lot of jokes about Streisand there was a a, I must admit very funny um, Craig Brown column in Private Mm -hmm. Eye which was like a spoof interview with her and she said uh, yeah, I think Hollywood's conservative. I, it's, I've been trying to shop around a Nelson Mandela biopic, and even though I tell them I'll direct, I'll play the lead, you know, they're still not interested. And that, you know, that joke was basically how she was seen at that point as as someone who yeah. would just shoehorn herself into the lead, even if she didn't fit. But it's it's very interesting that she's on Criterion now, and I think. If you look at this in the context of modern Hollywood, where even like 70s slasher movie sequels have to pretend to be saying something deep about trauma, it's definitely uh-huh. ahead of the curve in that way. Yeah. Um, but no, like I say, I mean, I liked Prince of Tides a great deal. I think, like I say, I mean, I do think it's flaws. I think it's teetering on great for me just teetering but there are a couple setbacks i mean namely with the last act and how it develops i, I think maybe possibly could have needed like another redraft it's funny you mentioned like um the slasher sequence because I, I looked at the extras yeah on my copy of the criterion prince of tide guess who interviews barbara streisand for uh like an interview sequence on a, a, a series called director's chair director's chair even Okay, so is it is it a scene is it a series where directors talk to directors? Yes, basically. I'm gonna bet I'm gonna bet Wes Craven is a big was a big Barbara Streisand Whoa. fan. I'm close, aren't last. I? Yeah, you're very close. Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> okay, that 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 I wouldn't have got. That I would not have got. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was really bizarre when I looked at the yeah. extras. It was just like Wait, hang on. The guy who did the Machete films, the Spy Kids films, <laughs> El Mariachi. What? <laughs> How strange. But, you know, I-, I can see why her reputation as a director has grown because I'm looking at the list of films that she didn't get made when she sort of, she kind of stepped back from cinema in the 90s. Um, Mm. she's only had a couple of acting roles uh, this century and more troublingly one of them is Little Fockers Um, Uh, and (laughs) I think that's how I um, got to know Streisand through it it wasn't Little Fockers it was the one before it meet the Fockers because that American comedy the American comedy thing and you know and you know rampant during the noughties and you know it's just like but you look at some of the things she didn't get off the ground and you think, all right, she's ahead of the curve on some of this. Like in, in the 
late 2000s, she was trying to adapt Larry Kramer's play The Normal Heart about uh, mm. about the AIDS crisis, which was adapted a couple of years back by Ryan Murphy. She was mm-hmm. trying in the 2010s to make a film about Catherine the Great, which nowadays I believe 97% of all television is based on the life of Catherine the Great. It's like... That that's an unfair generalization. There's also fucking cop shows all the time. Cops and <laughs> Catherine the Great. What a golden age of fucking television we're living in right now. Yeah, it's just like you wonder why her career died after like um, a bird film um, directing career. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, because I I do think she has like talent. She knows how to handle. I mean, it's not like the case with like say two hundred motels where. Um, he is a musician in Frank Zappa, like trying to get the basic elements of filmmaking, but not doing it, not knowing how to handle it, or not transferring his talent over to his uh, yeah, yeah. filmmaking industry. Uh, with Streisand, she knows how to do it. She yeah. knows how to put a scene together. She knows how to uh, direct actors. Mm. Knows how to do that. It's just kind of like the edges around it where it's a bit rough. And it's it's fascinating to think of someone like Streisand, who in, in, a, in a lot of ways, and not just her age, is old Hollywood. You know, she broke through doing big, like, glitzy Hollywood musicals right at the moment when that form became essentially obsolete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you, there is a part of her that you think would be very at home in, like, 30s or 50s Hollywood, making those movies all the time. But like I say, mm-hmm. when you look at those unmade projects, you think, is it me or was no one ready for that yet? And in a strange mm-hmm. way, looking at Prince of Tides, you think, is it me or was no one ready for that yet? For all, it was a big success. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I think it's treatment of trauma, particularly male trauma and masculinity. I think it's treatment of gay characters is mm-hmm. massively ahead of its time. Massively. Yeah, yeah, uh, and you've got to commend her for that because it, it is just like, and um, why Pat Conroy, um, you know, advocated for it because it, it, it's yeah. just a very, it is a very tasteful film. It does have its flaws, uh, mm. I will say that, but it's, you know, you you can kind of understand. It's an oddity in the Criterion collection for sure, but, you know, kudos to them. It makes more sense than it does at first blush, yeah. I think in, in terms of uh, things in this film that are very ahead of their time, uh, there is one music cue that I have to mention. Mm-hmm. When Tom goes to uh, the party that Lowenstein's at, and it's kind of... I think I recognise... I do recognise the song, but I carry on, yeah. It's 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 not exactly a gay event, but it's it, the implication is look, it's just a New York high society event. There's gay people, there's straight people. Tom walks in there and gets hit on by a guy, uh-huh. uh, and he copes with it really admirably, which I think is very uh-huh. charming. Like there, there's a lot of Hollywood films around at the time that would just treat that as an excuse to beat the shit out of the guy, but this is not one of them. Um, mm-hmm. But the music that's playing is Monkey by George Michael. No. Yeah. Now, <laughs> no. did Barbara <laughs> Streisand know something that the rest of us didn't back then? 
Because <laughs> this is like wow. seven years before George Michael was outed. Yeah, yeah, that is. What do you know? <laughs> it's just like I want, <laughs> I want like a psychiatrist to sit strides and down. In like, so we can like, absolutely tell me more. We can make a very meta follow up to Prince of Tides where Nick Nolte like takes Barbara Streisand back through her life and says, When did you find out that George Michael was gay? <laughs> yeah, that's a great note. I, I can tell you my favorite scene in this where it's like very tastefully done humor. It's where, um, because we haven't mentioned like uh, Tom Wingo's brother. Yeah, who, yeah. Again, there's another strand that's kind of there, but it's not really kind of developed mm. there. But it's when, um, and you do get elements that that you know their father was uh, both Nolte's character and his sister, and his brother was quite a dickhead, basically. Yeah. And uh, it's that scene where you know he's talking in Southern drawl. I'm trying to watch the TV. Why can't you kids just go away? And there's his brother with a rifle shoots the TV. Yes. And it's a great scene. I just I, I burst out laughing when is I saw it, that scene. Do you, is it? Do you think an Elvis reference? Because when I when I see someone shoot the TV, all I can think of is I, I think it was an urban myth. But the idea that Elvis shot a TV if he hated what he was watching, um, mm. and there is a Streisand Elvis link because Elvis was originally going to play the Chris Christopherson role in her version of A Star is Born. Oh, right. Possibly. That might yeah. be a, like a tip, hat tip off to Elvis. Yeah. Maybe. Um, but yeah, that is a great scene. I like Brad Sullivan's performance as their father. Um, mm. I think that's a very difficult role because there is nothing sympathetic at all in it. There is no like extra layer to that character which makes him more understandable and that's an odyssey mm. in the film in a lot of ways everyone else is explicable but he's just monstrous yeah um, because he, he's kind of like the looming threat yeah over it all basically the insidious figure that's from the past who's you know just really quite tenacious and holds grip because the first time you see him he's like obviously just like complaining about like the food on the table yeah and then it's just like, because he, he complains it's like dog food or, or dog shit or something like that. And then uh, obviously the wife goes and fixes him something else. Like, And I just wanted him to say in like the southern drawl of a voice, Jamalaya. Because <laughs> it's, it's just like, it's just like, that's real food. And, you know, something like that. Because it, it, it just like feels, oh, great. We've done a full like night of the hunter mode. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting, that, because it's. I think Tom lays the southernness on more than the film does. I think with Tom saying, oh, I'm a southerner, it's what we do, is obviously kind of a defensive strategy against going deeper. Mm. But, the, I mean, I've seen some very hammy Hollywood presentations of southern culture, uh, and oh, this yeah. is not really one of them, I think. Ne ne yeah, before we have to end the uh, episode on this, name the worst one. Oh, Beast of the Southern Wild. I fucking hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen... Yeah. I watched that movie and I thought, is there anyone in the Deep South Reeks with a knife and fucking fork? Is, is there anyone who does that? Cue, uh, like, Leonard Skinner over the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... I've never seen Beast of the Southern Wild, but I... I remember it being lauded at the time, but even then, I have 
not interested in it whatsoever. It's such a weird film to become big at that point, and it just because it, it's I can't remember whether it's explicitly set in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina or whether it's just doing one of those nudge wink sort of. There was a big storm down in the south about six to eight years ago. And it's like, yeah, just say Katrina, you fucking coward. Um, but <laughs> it, it reminded me how absolutely obscene it is that Hurricane Katrina, unless you count Spike Lee's documentaries, Hurricane Katrina has not yet had its United 93. But in that moment... Mm-hmm. It has, abs- I mean, the, yeah. it has absolutely had its extremely loud and incredibly close. <laughs> I mean, the closest you can get if it's done like well is probably it, even then. It, I don't even think it's like based on Hurricane Katrina. It's probably like the Mike, not Mike Nichols, Jeff Nichols film, the other one. Um, Give me shelter. Oh yeah, yeah. Take shelter. Yeah, take shelter. That's it. Not give me shelter. It's not the same thing, but it, you can definitely read that as kind of an attempt to process the aftershock of Hurricane Katrina. It's like there is a very small detail in Finch's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And I mean, I like that film more than most people, but that, that it's I like, think, it's, yeah, it's less think, Fincher. Less it. Well, I think that was Hollywood's first attempt at getting to grips with Katrina. And it's just this like minor detail in a story about whimsical white people. And you just think, it's not the story. That's not the story mm. of that event. Yeah. yeah. So but, anyway, I mean, yes. yeah. Prince of Tides, uh, an oddity for sure, but uh, it's the one that I kind of have, you know, a soft spot for. I don't know. It, it's, uh, I can still see uh, a fair bit of the kind of Hollywood stylization that I, I found hard to deal with when I was young in it, uh, because it is from that era, but I think there is more meat here than I was expecting. And I think there are parts of it that have have aged in a way that does Streisand nothing but credit. Mm, yeah. So, yes, um, if you enjoyed that, listeners, you can get a free bonus episode. Well, not a free bonus episode. You have to donate to our Patreon. A free bonus episode, apart from the stuff you pay for, uh, by donating to our Patreon every month. Uh, you can also get unrestricted access to our other movie podcast, Directors Uncut, where we deal with a randomly selected director every month, uh, as well as my Doctor Who reviews. But until next time, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. I've been Aiden. And we'll see you next time.